This season of Life on a Plate is sponsored by Bellazoo, the amazing suppliers of Mediterranean and Middle Eastern ingredients. Their range includes premium olive oils and vinegars, pestos, pastes, and preserved lemons. And if you haven't yet tried their signature Rosa Rissa, which is a staple in my fridge, then you are in for a treat. Bellazoo started 30 years ago when two friends, George and Adam, drove a van full of olives back from France. They began supplying chefs, then home cooks, and have never looked back. Bellazoo ingredients are restaurant quality, and I've genuinely been a fan for a very long time. Their tahini from Nablus has a very special place in my kitchen shelf. It's so nutty and flavoursome. Their ingredients are such a simple way to enhance other flavours, and they transform any dish. Bellazoo source and develop their products very carefully, without compromising on quality, and have gone above and beyond in their commitment to the environment and to looking after their suppliers. To find out more, go to waitrose.com forward slash Bellazoo to discover the range for yourself. Hi, I'm Yasmin Khan. And you're listening to Life on a Plate, the podcast from Waitrose. Throughout the season, my co-host, Alison Okavy and I are going to be talking to a range of fantastic guests from many walks of life and asking them to share their stories through the food memories, dishes and ingredients that mean the most to them. Hi, Alison. How are you doing? Hi, Yasmin. I'm really well, thank you. How about you? I'm really well, and it feels like such a privilege to be joining you on season four of Life on a Plate. Thank you so much for inviting me on. It's great to have you with us, and I know we did a trailer, but tell us a bit more about who you are and what you've done. Uh, As you know, I I write cookbooks for a living. You know, I've written a few, mainly focused on Middle Eastern food. Uh, But I'm also really fascinated, not just in, you know, recipe writing, but the, the power of food to tell us kind of stories about ourselves and the world around us. So I'm really looking forward to chatting to this incredible selection of guests we've got coming up and finding out about how the food that they've shared has influenced their lives. Yeah, and we've got a great first guest, haven't we? Absolutely. What a cracking first guest. We've got Yotam Osalengi and Noor Murad, who, for me, are just two of my culinary inspirations, really. I think Yotam Montalengi needs very little introduction, uh, but, you know, let's remind ourselves of who he is. You know, he's the author of eight best-selling and multi-award-winning cookery books, a restaurateur and chef patron of the four London-based Ossolengi delis, as well as Nopi and Rovi restaurants. He's been a weekly columnist for the Saturday Guardian for over 13 years and a regular contributor to the New York Times. But perhaps more than all of that, I feel like what Yotam has done over the last 15 years in his championing of vegetables has led to this thing which I think we can all identify as like the Ossolengi effects. Like, you know if someone says, oh, that's a bit otolenghi, that it means that it's like shorthand for a dish that's really vibrant, full of colour, very vegetable focused, um, just incredible flavours and 
drama in the mouth is how he likes to describe it. <laughs> and as well as Yossam, we've got one of his test kitchen colleagues, Noor Murad. Now, Noor is a Bahraini-born chef whose international work experience, she was a chef in New York, eventually brought her to the Oslengi family about five years ago. And she developed recipes for their brilliant book, Flavor, as well as works for, you know, his masterclass series and their other online publications. And I really enjoyed talking to Noor especially because her Bahraini roots have had a real strong influence on her cooking and her recipes have got a lot of Arabic, Persian and Indian flavours, which mm. I love sharing um, with people because I just think they're the best flavours in the world. Have you cooked up any of them now we've got your hands on a book? I did. I made the comfy tandoori chickpeas, which Yum. honestly... I feel it's going to be like a weekday staple for me now. One of those really easy dishes where you just put everything in a casserole dish, bang it in the oven. It's ready in an hour. That's my favourite type of cooking. <laughs> and that's really like uh, spicy, kind of a bit like a chana masala, Indian flavours. Um, and then I made a kind of Persian-inspired dish, uh, a kofta, so kind of uh, meatballs that were lamb and beef made with some rice um, in this beautiful kind of sweet and sour sauce. Yeah, it was absolutely delicious. Uh, have you have you cooked anything from it? Yeah, I, I cooked the courgette and tomato loaf cake. Ooh. It's kind of got a cheesy bread and it makes it with a, a really spicy, Spicy tomato chutney, which you kind of put some of it in the loaf as well as serving it alongside. It was just delicious and perfect if you've got a glut of courgettes like I've got in the garden. Well, okay, I'm going to add that one to my list. <laughs> mm. All right, then. Well, should we uh, get going on the conversation? Yeah, let's get going. Okay, well, kicking off season four of Life on a Plate, here is our conversation with Yotta Motilengi and Noor Murad. So hello, Yotam and Noor. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Good to be here. Lovely to be here. Do you know Alison? Alison, do you, have you guys met before? No, we've never met. Although, Yotam, I, I need to confess, I was at Le Cordon Bleu when you were, I think I worked at Le Cordon Bleu in the recipe really? office when you were a student. Wow. Weren't you there around 98, 99? Yes, 97, 98, yeah. Yeah, because I was there kind of. Yeah, 97, 98 to 2001 or something like that. So we have met, we have met. We've met. I used to get accused of being only wanting to work at Cordon Bleu because of the white chocolate fudge with the griot cherries <laughs> because they used to always be left over and there was a fire alarm and I actually got caught taking the tray out to the street. <laughs> you, set, you set it all up. <laughs> You started the fire. Yeah. But nice to meet you both and, and nice to meet you, Nora, as well. Nice to meet you, Alison. Both me and Alison were talking earlier about how we feel that we've been interacting with the whole Ottolenghi family for a while now. And we particularly enjoyed reminiscing about our very first Ottolenghi experience. And I remember mine so clearly. Honestly, it's so interesting. It was my birthday and I always take the day off. And this is back in like 20, 2007. It was before the book, first book came out, but the yeah, Guardian column was still happening, was had just started. And I knew that there was this place. And, and I really remember I went and it was the Islington branch I went to. And this is also very remnant of the time because I got a cupcake. I mean, that was so of the moment. Well, do you remember the whole cupcake? Everyone was eating cupcakes. I would never get that now. I don't know why I did. We used to make like four types of cupcakes every single day. 
Do we? Uh, we don't make cupcakes anymore, do we? No, no we have one I that we make once so in a yeah. We're so over <laughs> but it. it. But it was so like of that year, I think, and it was, and it had like a rose cream, like you know, the frosting, and it had like a lemon yeah. base. So obviously, already I was like, oh, the flavors of the Middle East, and mm. I remember having like the salads and. It was just such a moment for me, actually. You know, I'd eaten, been eating food, and I'm born in this country, been eating food in this country all my life. But all of a sudden, my taste buds were getting the vibrancy <laughs> of the food because we eat so much food that's like. So my mum's a nutritionist, so we always ate a lot of vegetables, a lot of Persian flavors, but lots of like sour. Lots. So I was getting all that herbs and freshness, but it just looked so incredible. <laughs> and I, mm. I walked out, and that was it. I was. I was a fan. <laughs> what about you, Alison? Oh, I just remember the magic of just the piles of the salad and the and the huge meringues. I mean, everyone is doing those big meringues now, but it was those clouds that were in the window of uh, <laughs> the, the meringues that were just magical. And the magic continues here and now with your new book, Shelf Love, the first in a new series from the Ottolenghi Test Kitchen team. Me and Alison have both been cooking from the book this week and absolutely loving it. Like all of the books that come out of the Ottolenghi Test Kitchen, the recipes are so vibrant and delicious and so colourful that I've just bookmarked so many recipes that I'm going to be cooking in the coming months. Um, but before we get talking about the concept behind the book, I'd love to hear more about your food backgrounds and the journeys that you've taken that have brought you to this place now. So, Yossam, let's start with you. What did food look like for you when you were growing up? I grew up in Jerusalem, which is a kind of a, it's a huge, it's a, it's a huge mix up and mash up of different cultures and cuisines. And in a way, it's really, it's very interesting. So I, my parents are a Jewish family from, uh, my mom is from, her family is uh, uh, Jews from Germany and my, ta- my dad is from Italy. And in, in a sense, I had I, the German influence was not so strong in our ha- household. That didn't stay with me as much as my Italian um, heritage, which is uh, my father, uh, which is really kind of classical northern Italian food, polenta and pasta and gnocchis and um, very precise set of, you know, recipes that were followed to the tea and they were always very good. But then when you'd walk out, there was this kind of huge Palestinian influence, which was the the other half of Jerusalem, the eastern part. And we used to go a lot to eastern Jerusalem and to the part of the West Bank, Bethlehem, Jericho, and really enjoy the food there. And there's a massive you know, food tradition, even within Palestinian culture. Yasmin, as you know so well now, there is so many kind of foods, but I've kind of absorbed it by osmosis, just by the sheer fact that it was all around and we used to go and eat it all over. And it was a very different time in the, in the history of the conflict. So it was much easier to go and interact. And, uh, and you know, we used to go to this uh, pita uh, um, bakery in, the, in East Jerusalem. And the baker, Hassan, used to make, he had cats and they were all over the bakery. And the, and the, and the oven was this kind of actually in the wall. And, you know, with kids, we just loved this whole kind of business of going and immersing ourselves in, in that world. So... These are the kind of foods that I had when I was growing up. How do you think growing up in, in Jerusalem has really affected your palate? Yeah, I've, it's something that I've, I've only, when, Sam, when Sammy Tamimi and I wrote the book Jerusalem, it was the first time that I really spent time, I spent time like thinking about what, what is it that we've been eating and what was it like? And, and it wasn't, I've never thought myself so much as a Jerusalem cook because there is something about leaving Jerusalem, like, everyone that leaves their home, many people who live there 
their hometown behind. They're very happy to see the back of it. And, uh, and Jerusalem is also quite heavy in so many ways. It weighs heavy on, on uh, historically, you know, you really carry the weight of history in every, every step you take. And so growing up there was kind of complicated emotionally because of the conflict, but also because of the, you know, 3000 years of history. But, um, but then when we started working on the book and understanding what it was like, I realized that I was really kind of, I was very, I was privileged in many senses because it is so rich. You've got the, the Palestinian tradition, uh, which even that is so multi-layered. As I've said, you know, there is Ottoman influences, Egyptian influences, Persian influences, uh, within Palestinian culture, but then you've got all the immigrants, the Jewish immigrants, diasporas from people that come from different diasporas, a lot from North Africa, Libya, Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, uh, from Syria, from Iraq, a lot of Iraqi Jews, Yemen, Iran, and then Ashkenazi Jews uh, with their tradition. So it's really, it's kind of, it's really hard to explain how diverse and complex this world all is. And I feel like I'm the beneficiary of this situation because I've had so many different foods, but I also didn't bring up, grow up in one particular tradition. It's that diversity, which is just so exciting. I think your book, Jerusalem, does such a fantastic job of capturing all those different elements, actually. I know from close hand, it's not an easy place to even write an introduction about. So I can only imagine how difficult that must have been. But I really remember I read it and I thought, Oh, they've nailed that. <laughs> Thank you. Noor, I'd love to hear about, yeah, your culinary influences. You grew up in Bahrain and your mother was English and your father was Bahraini. And I'd, I'd love to hear, I know a little bit about the cuisine of Bahrain because I've been down to the south of Iran. Bandar Abbas is, is very similar, kind of it was a port town where there's just so many kind of Indian, Persian, African, Portuguese influences just because of the nature yeah. of the trading route. But I'd love to hear, yeah, what was the food like for you when you were growing up? Obviously, my dad is Bahraini and I was born and raised in Bahrain. Like I always say it's a combination of three different cultures. It's got a huge Persian influence in our food uh, and also a big Indian influence um, and and Middle Eastern. So it's those three things combined into one, um, which makes it really, really unique. Um, so, I mean, a lot of the dishes have so many herbs, liberal herbs, which is definitely something from Iran. A lot of sourness uh, from the black limes. I think in Iran, they probably use the lighter green ones a bit more. And then we have very liberally spiced food, which I think is a bit different to Iran. So we use a lot of the Indian spices. And then there's like a huge street food uh, culture. We love uh, like, and it's very, very simple things. Like you go to these little hole in the wall places and you get, um, we call it khabaz khabaz, which is baker's bread. And and it's just, it's cooked in those clay ovens. And then, and the best way to have it is um, you say, I want khabaz debel jibin, which means double cheese. They basically like, fold this big clay bread into like a triangle and like they put this like cheese spread um unidentifiable cheese bread i not i don't know if it's cheese and devon means you want like a very thick layer of it then they like fold it they put it back in the oven and it's all like hot and melty and like delicious it's funny we have no you know like we we have uh for Palestinian Arabs from the north of Israel they do something quite similar they take their very fried flatbread and they um, and they spread it with labneh and then they put parsley 
and then they fold it four times and stick it on a in a taboon or whatever hot anything that's hot and then it's but it's it's folded in the same way like four times and then and then it's and then it's eaten warm and it's just so good. Yeah, yeah. And then we'll have the other one is with this this sauce that um is very unique to Bahrain. It's called mehiawa. It's basically like a fermented anchovy sauce. And it's uh not everybody loves it, but it's really it's so delicious. I don't think I've had that. I think it's more from I think it's originated from South Iran and it was brought to Bahrain and kind of made Bahraini style. So it's like you take all these dried anchovies. Um, and then you blitz them with loads of spices, black pepper and coriander and cloves and all these things. And you kind of like uh, mix it with vinegar and water. And then you ferment it in like old, you reused like Vimto bottles. It's like, wow. the, it's like, <laughs> it's the thing to do. I don't know why. And it smells like, whoo, like so pungent. And then you just put it on bread, sometimes with cheese, sometimes without. And you wrap that up and you eat it. And uh, my dad always used to take us to these street markets to have these kind of things, um, which is which is really good. But on the other side of it, I'd go home and my mom, being English, would make like shepherd's pie and like spag wow. bowl. And um, I remember my dad used to say like, why don't you make the Arabic food, metbous? And she's like, you want metbous? Like, go to your mom's and she will make you <laughs> food. But here, but here you're eating, you're eating my food and it's pie. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> it's very interesting because my I also come from mixed heritage. So my mom's from Iran. My dad's from Pakistan in the house. They both are really good cooks. They both cook different things. And I don't know if you this happened in your households, but as the time as my parents kind of, you know, the longer they spent together, I found that my mum's Iranian food got a bit more spicy, like she would be adding a bit more kind of chili and black pepper. <laughs> my dad's Pakistani food started incorporating a few more vegetables, a lot more kind of, yeah. It, and so it's interesting when, when we'd get people from the diaspora coming to our house, they'd be like, oh, that, that Osha noodles, that noodle soup, it's too, it's too peppery, or they would have their <laughs> own little blendings that were going on. And I'm, I'm, I definitely feel that with my cooking now, that's influenced me. Your mum's shepherd's pie didn't get livened up or... Get... <laughs> it definitely gets livened up if my dad has something to do with it. <laughs> no, you've got everyone's dream job. You work in the Ottolenghi test kitchen. Tell us your journey to getting there. Well, I've been working in food for, for years. Like I have, I come from a family foodies. We love, we love to eat. Family of eaters. Um, and uh, and uh, yeah, I just, I started working in kitchens when I was quite young. I was 16 when I got my first uh, you know, job, um, in summer job in a, in a, in a like hotel kitchen. It was chaos. It was absolute chaos. And I think that's what kind of drew me in. And that didn't put you off. Yeah, no, I think, I think I was just one of those people that was like such a, I was just a, an A student. I was always, you know, just so studious. And it was the first time that this was something just completely just manic and something about it. I was like, I want to be here. Uh, my dad was like, uh, what are you doing? <laughs> but, and then I just ended up in food and, and studying. And I, I, um, I worked in Bahrain for a bit. I, and then I went to New York and I, and I studied culinary and then I worked there as well, uh, before going back to Bahrain. And, um, but you know, I reached this point where Bahrain is such a tiny country and, um, there was only so, so far I could go. And I was really quite eager to, I, I'm quite like a, one of those people that just wants to discover and, and travel and, and, and expand and grow. And, um, so for me, I was like, well, 
I've never lived in England. Technically, I'm half English, even though I didn't feel it. I don't, I don't feel half English. I still don't feel half English. Um, and I was like, I'm going to get on a plane and I'm going to move uh, to the UK. Well, I'm just do it. And then uh, and then I was like, but I'm only doing it if I get to work at Ozelengi because I had all of, oh, wow. <laughs> of the books. I had all of the books. Uh, Jerusalem to this day is still my favorite. So, yeah. And then uh, and then I started working at Ozelengi Spitalfield. It's actually the first week that I moved. We need shortly go on to the book in a minute but you know I've been enjoying your recipes in, in in several of the previous books and you were talking about black limes earlier and I was just reminded of your black lime and tofu I think I don't know which one that's in is it in flavor, flavor? it's in flavor yeah, flavor, it's yeah. really good <laughs> and yeah so I'm very glad that you you made that journey me too I'm very yeah. I'm very happy she made the journey <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So Shelf Love is a collection of recipes that celebrate store-covered ingredients. You know, the things that you've got at the back of the kitchen cupboard, in the freezer, in the fridge, how you can make substitutions with what you already have. What was the inspiration behind the book? We always wanted to make Ottolenghi Test Kitchen books, like dedicated books that, that are different from the traditional Ottolenghi cookbooks. Uh, was was in the in the air for quite a while, but we didn't really know how. To, we didn't nail it. We just thought like we want to teach things that come out of the test kitchen specifically, like certain skills and solutions and things that people would want, because we're constantly testing recipes and we have those insights and and also it's kind of a very uh, vibrant environment that we wanted to share with the rest of the world. And then a pandemic hit us, and it was twenty twenty and. Um, and we had to shut the test kitchen because obviously everybody had to go into lockdown. And um, Noor went to Bahrain and I went to Ireland where Carl, my husband, is from. And um, the other members of the team were in London, in, either on their own or with their families. And the cooking that we normally do in our test kitchen, which is used to be under a rail, uh, railway arch in Camden, but now it's on Holloway Road. But anyway, it's a very cooperative, collective space where people work together. Everybody was on their own all of a sudden, you know, cooking for their families and for themselves. Uh, so the, the way we worked really changed quite dramatically rather than just coming into the test kitchen every day, you know, thinking or chatting about what we're going to cook, ordering really exotic ingredients and kind of having like very aimless meandering through recipe testing all of a sudden it became very purposeful okay we're stuck at home we have to feed ourselves our families while we're testing recipes and we can't get all the ingredients that we want because you know you couldn't go out and even when you did go to the supermarkets the shelves were half empty so it was this kind of really particular situation and this really informed the recipes that came out of the test kitchen at that particular point in time uh, which was what you have at the back of your cover, using up ingredients, substituting for what you can't get. It's a very kind of pragmatic, uh, practical way of treating cooking. And that's the beginning of shelf love. And the shelf is the kitchen shelf uh, that has all these things hiding in it, on it, at the very back of your pantry or in your freezer or in your veg box. And you want to give it the love it deserves and create incredible Ottolenghi-style feasts. It also explains why every recipe in Shelf Love has got a little box that says, make it your own. You, the great thing about it is you're giving people permission to put their own spin on it because they might not have the right ingredient. And it's great. It's really helpful. 
pretty much when we came up with the premise of the book, we were at home and we were cooking those meals using what we had and using store-bought ingredients that were accessible to everyone. Internationally accessible. Internationally, exactly. So you can get a chickpea anywhere now. So, uh, but I mean, uh, very quickly, once the book started to come together and it, we are a test kitchen, it's a very hands-on job and we kind of need that team spirit. So we, we, we opened up the test kitchen, I think, back again in June um, of, of 2020. So we were still working, albeit a very small team. But generally, I think the, the great thing I always say about test kitchen is that um, you kind of, Yotam gives us the kind of space that we need to kind of see through a recipe. So we and that really gives you a sense of like this is mine i i created it because you come up with a, an idea and then you can see it through however many tests it takes you or whatever journey that is whatever disaster that might happen along the way um and uh, i mean we also work very collaboratively collaboratively as a team in like tasting and giving each other feedback and being like well i think this recipe needs this um but also at the same time it's it's your recipe it's your idea and you get to see it through um, which is, yeah, which is how we work at Test Kitchen. So I've got a question, which as someone who also kind of writes cookbooks, I'm curious in. And I remember hearing this interview with Roots Maneuver, the musician, years ago, and he was talking about an album. And, and someone, someone was asking him, you know, what is your biggest challenge with, with your songs? And he said, I just never really know when a song is done. He said, you know, <laughs> and I have to be pulled away <laughs> from the studio. And, you know, with cookbook, well, so, you know, from my experience, you know, I kind of have, you know, I kind of set some rules for myself, but then it's always frustrating because I think when you go back and look at a recipe you wrote a few years ago, you're like, oh, I would do that differently now or like, oh, now I would have done this. And how do you know when an Ottolenghi test kitchen recipe is done? I think, I think what really helps is the group. So, um, you know, it really helps to have that kind of seal of approval that everybody tasting and saying, well, that's great, or that needs another little touch or another little change. Or well, we often say, oh, that needs to be autolengified, <laughs> which we, we, by which we probably mean that it it's, needs more of an angle, you know, something a little bit unusual going on. But these are really useful conversations because um, because that, then you don't only need to you, you don't only need to trust your own instincts. And you know, I come in, and Noor and Chaya and Verena would taste things, and they. We would taste it together and it's their recipe because they developed it from start to finish. But I think just that moment where you taste and say, okay, well, that's good. You know, that's really good. And, and that, I think that, um, realization from the team that you've done and achieved that kind of, that's a nice full stop moment, I think. But we also have a kind of the ultimate arbitrar, which is, uh, <laughs> which is Claudine and she's our secret weapon in Wales and she, Whenever we're not sure, well, she gets every recipe to test um, on with her family, um, you know, cooking it to her kids and her husband and her neighbors. Yeah. And she, she's the one, <laughs> she's, the one <laughs> she's the one that sends us the final uh, verdict. How many times would you, on average, test a recipe before it goes to print? I mean, I would say on average, uh, three to five times. Um, we're very like rigorous at Test Kitchen. So we will, even if you get it right the first time, like say it's a recipe that you just, you had a vision and you executed it. And it worked. With, yeah, and it, it totally works. I know, <laughs> it's so it does, great. And you're, like, <laughs> and you're like, yes. You never quite believe it's, it's it, you've done it right. You totally don't. So then you end up testing it again because you're like, wait, I need to test the timings. This, was this, 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 was this a fluke? Like, and, then, and so um, I, I would say, on average like three to five but sometimes I mean 
if, if it's especially, you know, all of us have our strengths, but we also have our weaknesses. And that is what's the beauty of the test kitchen is, um, you know, you, you play to both. And, and so for me, I'm baking in pastry is not something that I'm like super, super um, confident with, although I do really enjoy it because I come come at it from a very like a uh, savory chef angle. So like much more like, Oh, what if I did these two things and not really thinking about the science behind it? Um, so, so for me, like those recipes will definitely take a lot longer to get right. Obviously, as you described, you know, this, this book really came out of, of the pandemic, even though there were murmurings of it beforehand. And I'm really looking forward to it as a series, actually. I think it's a, such mm. a great concept. I mean, all of your concepts are so great. I have to say, like, it's just every time I'm like, ah, oh, they nailed it with something else that's so innovative. But um, just to go back to the pandemic for a second, I mean, I, I'd love to know for both of you, actually, you know, how has the last 18 months been for you? And what have you learned from this, this whole pandemic process? I think it's been such a existential moment for so many of us. So Yotam, I mean, pandemic life, yeah. how's it been? <laughs> it's been, um, I call it the um, snakes and ladders scenario. So you can you go up, and then you fall back down, and then you go up again. And fall back down and it's just it's really complicated it's so um intense it's been so intense and so unpredictable and and i feel like very traumatized by what happened in the first part of the pandemic because it seems so existential and so really very you know and i think everybody experienced it in their world but in my world which is the only world i know it it's been that kind of moment where I didn't really have the confidence to say the first time in, in my life that, you know, that my business, you know, the, the restaurants, because I wear two hats, I guess. I wear, I wear the hat of the uh, cookery writer, you know, I publish cookbooks, but then I wear the hat of the co-owner of a group of London restaurants. And I really didn't feel that I could, I could say with confidence that we're going to bounce back. It just felt so scary, really terrifying. And I remember this moment when I was on the phone with a friend in America and she said to me, this was like quite a few weeks into the pandemic. She says, um, she said, so what what, what happened if you can't reopen the restaurants? And the funny thing is like, when she said it, it's not like I haven't thought about it, but when you think about yourself and the rest of the world doesn't project that back to you. You think that you're making it up. You're a bit paranoid. But when someone in the outside world actually reflects that and says, you feel like my heart just sank. I was in a queuing in the supermarket. I remember in Ireland, I thought like, this is really a possibility. And, and you know what? We have so many employees and the thought of that us not being able to offer them jobs uh, was really terrifying. And just this whole family that's been created through so much work. And it's, it's my life. You know, I don't have family in London. I have family in England. And, the, and that's the company. And that's the kind of the little world that create, we created. That was really terrifying. And I think I'm not kind of, I'm not over that trauma yet because it was just so intense. I mean, where do you feel the industry is at now? Yeah, it's really difficult. I mean, there's so many challenges. I think everybody kind of, I th- the people that the businesses that survived it are now in a much better position. The businesses that have not survived it, that's a, it, that's a lot of little tragedies that I, I, that, you know, are, are there. And that's the, you know, that's COVID, you know, that's the world we live in. It's full of tragedies. And there's a lot of vibrancy, vitality in the business. And we kind of, all found a way to 
pivot, which is a terrible word, but it's the word everybody uses. No, it's now. true, though, isn't it? And, uh, <laughs> we all became like um, California-esque startup yeah. communicators, didn't we? So how are we going to pivot? Yeah, no, that, that sounds really hard. And Noor, what about you? How, how's the last 18 months been for you? For me, like on a, on a personal level, I'm, I mean, I'm Middle Eastern, so I have a very fiery temperament. Uh, and it's, it's, I was always that way, um, I think. And I think the, the, the pandemics, definitely the last 18 months has kind of changed that slightly in that I've kind of been a lot more accepting of things that are out of my control. And I'm similar to Yota, my family's in Bahrain, but I also have kind of created a little family here, um, especially with people at the test kitchen. We're, we're such a small team. I think we really came together through this uh, pan- pandemic and we've managed <laughs> to pull off a lot of things that maybe we wouldn't have done at such speed. Um, and I think that kind of gave us like a sense of like, meaning and a sense of fulfillment you know sometimes you can be so stuck in like oh I need to get this recipe done but you kind of forget like how maybe the food that we put out there is quite important to people and might touch people or might land on someone's table and like really make their day um, and I think I, I've kind of got a sense of that through through the whole pandemic and this is kind of the upside of the pandemic for us I think was like there was a lot a lot to be very confused and, and, and worried about, but there was also a lot to be thankful for. And I think those, those moments where we were, where things were exploding on social media and everybody was cooking and you could have these conversations and everybody joined our, our passion, you know, people that didn't even like cooking started cooking all of a sudden. And that feels, that's very empowering. And I think that was the, yeah, that was the, the other side of the pandemic for, for people in general, but for us in particular, to see how much joy, like Noor said, how much joy a plate of delicious plate of food can give people in a very anxious moment. So the Ottolenghi Test Kitchen seems to kind of really celebrate in the recipes kind of migration and mixed culinary influences. How do you think food relates to a migrant's experience? And how has that kind of played out in the Test Kitchen? Because it feels so diverse. Well, I, for me, I think, I mean, so I guess Noor and I are both migrants in a way, although she's half English. So she just went back to her motherland that was just waiting for her all, all those years. But no, in, in all seriousness, I see it a lot in our restaurants. You know, there's really are almost everyone or 60 70 percent are people who haven't been aren't from london or aren't from the uk and those 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 even if they're not cooking their own food uh this is the first thing that we can talk about you know is about their their food heritage and it's is it's it's dried maybe but it's such an international language because everybody eats it and everybody understands it intuitively that it's the first thing you hold on to as, as a migrant it's just so interesting how food kind of uh evolves i always find it as like a you know a cross-culture kid or or anyone it's just like you you end up cooking things from your parents but then you add a twist to it and then you change it and you add something else and then and then that evolves and then so i, I always say like you know we we keep cooking all these traditional foods but traditional food never stays the same it's always changing and I think that's at the test kitchen we are such a diverse team and we all come from different backgrounds uh, I mean I, I you know me from Bahrain my my colleague one of them's from Mauritius other one's from Germany and um I but what we do is we take what we know and we change it 
Um, and it's so interesting. And that's how food is constantly evolving and changing through all this um, migration. And I, I think it's a beautiful thing. I think as long as you honor those, those, those cultural flavors, I think it's, it's very beautiful how food can transform. I mean, just on that very point, we have in the last few years, I think the cultural appropriation debate, especially in the US, a bit more than the UK has raised, has kind of um, come to the forefront. Something that I've always found challenging, because again, when you come from like a mixed heritage, it's like, well, we're constantly mixing things and there's nothing wrong with that and we're adapting them. I mean, has that ever come into a discussion when you're creating recipes as a mixed team? Yeah, I think we are. I, we have been drawn to this uh, conversation, this this debate, it, uh, even if even when we didn't want to, <laughs> because what we do often is is create hybrids of dish from different cultures, or we just start with something that maybe has its roots in some kind of connotation or association related to one culture, but we build on it and create something else. It's a very hard thing to get right when you play with food, which is what we do. And we, so we have long debates. How is that going to be perceived? Is it going to be perceived as cultural appropriation or cultural bastardization you know what what is it going what is it going to be like and sometimes i understand the concerns but other times i feel that it's 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 kind of completely inappropriate because what we're doing is just really trying we're always very sensitive to what we're doing we're never doing like something willy-nilly oh let's just grab this from this culture and change it completely and not give credit right like that's not what we're doing we're doing something really creative with a lot of thought um, and sometimes you are misunderstood because people are not aware of the process. One of the things I find interesting nowadays is just because of, I guess, how social media works or maybe just how prominent personalities are put in the you know public realm. You can't just be like an author or a, a cookbook writer. It's almost as if something happens in the outside world and it's just like, well, what, what are you saying about it? What's your opinion on it? You know, what are you going to say? And sometimes, well, quite often I'm just like, well... It's not, it's not my thing. You know, I, I don't really want to say anything on this. So I wanted to, I guess, ask you, Yotam, like, how do you navigate that personally? You know, being such a prominent personality, you know, of Israeli descent, but just of Middle Eastern descent, probably, you know, how, how do you navigate this role of being a chef and a food writer, but then the external world? Yeah, I find it very difficult uh, to separate the, the, you know, to say, oh, you know, it's just all about food and leave me out of this conversation because I've also immersed, you know, immersed myself in these conversations as well. And we talked about Jerusalem, the book earlier, you know, that has been, it's all about this. So I find it really difficult to, to navigate. I have to say, like, um, one th- like, for instance, with the, um, war in Gaza, I tried really hard not to get involved because I, I was, and the reason why I didn't get involved is not because I don't think there's victims and I don't think people are suffering or struggling and I don't think it's awful, but because I think, my, I've got a family in Israel and I've, and I, and I've got pe- people that I know in Gaza or the West Bank or that I know of and I feel as, as sympathetic to them as I almost, as almost as I do to my own family. But I don't really have a, the, the platform to tell the whole complicated story of this crisis. You know, it's like emotionally, of course, I know there is, there's victims and there's the victimizers, et cetera, but nobody listens, you know, to that very complex situation. I mean, if I could write an essay about, the origins of all this about the occupation of the West Bank, about a lot, a lot of the history of this story, then I would be happy to do that, but I, it will take a long time. But 
people want quick fixes and quick answers and aligning yourself with one side or another. And it's, it's really complicated when you're torn in between the two cultures. Um, and it's, and, and, you know, so I, I find myself in a very tough position these days, often thinking like, what do I do? What's the right thing? What to say? And the, the annoying thing is it's often not about, it's just about what you say. And that has very little meaning because words are so cheap on social media. You can just say whatever you like. And it's like one click of a button and that's it. It has absolutely no meaning to your lifestyle and what you believe in really and what you've done and what you, it's just, it's just words. So yeah, I, I find it really challenging sometimes to really make a coherent substantial position and stand behind it. Yeah, it's a really tricky one to navigate. But what I think is really great is you're, you're really open to having these conversations because, you know, in my experience, the more we can normalise talking about this, the better it is for everyone. Uh, that's certainly what I learned, you know, when I was a human rights campaigner working on this issue for NGOs and, and also what inspired me to write Zaytun, which was my Palestinian cookbook about my travels through Israel and the occupied territories of the West Bank and Gaza. And I think, yeah, th those trips etched in my memories for so many reasons. You know, not only did I learn so much about the situation there, but it, it also felt really powerful, actually, to be able to come back and share with people the beauty and the joy that can be found in the region. It's time for the kitchen grill. But before that, I always ask everyone, what's the one store cupboard ingredient that your kitchen can't function without? Uh, I, yes, I always have a tub of tahini, tahina. Uh, because Where do you get your tahini from? This is a good, important conversation point. Well, I get it from the Altalingi website. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but which countries? It's a, it's a really interesting store. It's a really interesting one. So it's a Palestinian tahini. Uh, made in mm -hmm. Nazareth by Palestinian Christians. Um, I think it's one of the best. I think there's a lot of Palestinian brands and Lebanese brands that are good. Uh, I think this is definitely one of them. It's called El Ars. Um, but uh, there's a whole lot of great tahini coming from the Middle East. What about you, Noel? Uh Rice. Rice? <laughs> Basmati rice. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very important. It's the, it's the base of all dishes. I mean, it, you know, you'll have a meal in the table with an... 15 minutes plus steaming time. I'm on team rice as well, actually. There's this phrase in northern Iran, because they grow rice in northern Iran, and my family are, are rice farmers, um, that you're, you know how we like say blood, our blood sugar levels have gone down. <laughs> they kind of say our blood rice levels have gone down. So if we've not eaten enough rice in a particular day, it's like, oh, my blood rice levels have gone down. So I definitely it's a good thing. Brilliant. Time for the kitchen grill. It's a quick fire. There's no right or wrong. Tea or coffee? Tea. 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 Porridge or cereal? Porridge for me. Porridge. Mm. Porridge. <laughs> what? How do you have it? I love my porridge very plain with milk and brown rice. And brown, it's not rice. Go <laughs> back to it. <laughs> and brown and brown sugar. I, in that Ooh. respect, I don't. I don't like tons of things over it. Yeah. Classic. I like a savory porridge. So. <laughs> oh, nice. Fried or poached? Fried. Mm, fried. <laughs> Parsley or coriander? Coriander. <laughs> well, we haven't coordinated those answers. I was going to say, it feels the same. It's not just by chance that we are working together. Yeah, it's the same taste buds. Uh, butter or olive oil? Olive oil. Olive oil. <laughs> Chocolate or crisps? Chocolate. Oh, oh, here we go. There's one. 
<laughs> cheese or pudding? Oh. Pudding. Cheese doesn't agree with me. Oh. <laughs> can I, have both? I can't have both, right? I didn't no, you can't have, have both. You, you can't have, have one or the no. other. Uh, yeah, what if I'll... it's a cheesecake? I do. <laughs> <laughs> High tech or wooden spoon? Wooden spoon. Wooden spoon. Grazing or feasting? Grazing. I graze, even even though I know it's not good for me. Uh, feast, feasting. I like a selection. Buffet. Nice. <laughs> and finally, sight or smell? Sight. Ooh. Yeah, I sight as well. Wow. And that's the Kitchen Grill. Yotam and Noor, it was so nice to speak to you both. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. You've been listening to Life on a Plate from Waitrose with me, Yasmin Khan. Thank you to my co-host, Alison Okavi, and our guests, Yotam Otelengi and Noor Murad. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you can find more like it by subscribing to Life on a Plate wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about the series, go to waitrose.com forward slash podcast. Listener.